Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so happy you're with us today. You know, we're all allowed to have our favorites, right? And one of my very favorite people in the field of afterlife research is Michael Tim. Back when he and I were both presenting at conferences, that's kind of gone the way of the dodo after COVID. I met him and I talked with him and I just thought he was wonderful. No sweeter and gentler where lovely man ever has lived. And like many of those who are building great careers in the field of afterlife research and education, Michael is humble about his achievements, and believe me, he has no reason to be humble. His achievements are fabulous. He's also appreciative, I think, of the achievements of others, which is refreshing in what is a kind of competitive field. Um, He's always impressed me. There's an instinct if you're a researcher, and if you, you either have it or you don't, and people who have it bring wonderful things out of it. We've had some of them on here, um, several names come to mind. You know, you you bring information out of the depth of whatever you're researching. If you don't have that instinct, you just don't get, you know, it's almost like you don't hear the music. And and Michael really hears the music. He's He's done a wonderful job. He has written actually seven of what I think are the best afterlife-related books ever written based on the evidence. I'm going to give you their titles, The Afterlife Revealed, Resurrecting Leonora Piper, which was extraordinary, The Articulate Dead, also extraordinary, The Afterlife Explorers, and my favorite, Dead Men Talking, which was about World War II, uh, people who died in the war and didn't know they were dead, Transcending the Titanic, and just this year, No One Really Dies, 25 Reasons to Believe in an Afterlife. They're all wonderful. In fact, they're, they're they're like candy. They're very enjoyable. So if you want to sort of be happy learning as much as you can about the afterlife, all you have to do is load up your Kindle with Michael's books. He's with us today for the sixth time. And he and I were going back and forth talking about what to, what to talk about this time. And um, he, he told me that he's not quite certain about the afterlife. It's like, a I don't know, we'll ask him the percentage, down to 1% maybe, doubt, I don't know. But that astonished me because he has helped so many people to become certain. I really want him to be certain himself. Um, I'm one of the people he's helped to become certain. It's very hard to read his books without knowing that they're true. So um, we've got, we're going to talk about that, about the whole notion of being a skeptic. We'll talk about the people who are not skeptics, but say they are, and are simply out to try to keep the truth from coming through for as long as possible, the debunkers. And and we're going to talk about some of the most amazing proof there is that the afterlife exists. This is going to be kind of a free-ranging and I think kind of a fun talk. Um, think about the fact that there are so many things we believe are true. You believe in the air, right? But you can't see it. You believe in the planet Venus. You can see that one, but there's no way you can touch it. A lot of the things that we take as true, we have a lot of evidence of, but we can't prove that they're true. This is true of science in all its vague complexity at this point. And yet they won't look at something which, frankly, is far, it's hard for me to believe there's any way you could debunk it. Because, in fact, if you look at the evidence, it is all true. So 
mainstream science has been conducting what amounts to a war against the truth for more than a century. And people like Michael Tim are helping all of us to get past that war and get to the truth that is really glorious. So, Michael, I'm so glad you're here today. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Roberta. I appreciate being on again. I, I should point out that I'm not an academic. I'm not really a researcher per se. I consider myself a journalist, um, and uh, I guess I've become a historian of sorts, at least on the pre-1930 um, research, but definitely not an academic or um, uh, a researcher per se. Thank you, my dear, for proving my point. As I said, everyone, uh, this is the most humble person you've ever met, and he has no reason to be humble at all because what it doesn't matter. I'm not. A, I, I'm right now doing um, physics, Michael, and I never got beyond algebra two. So you don't have to have the credentials. If you got the goods, you don't really need the credentials. But I think it's lovely that you just said that. Yeah. Thank you. So, all right. So I, I, you sent me some notes and I would going through the notes. And, and I, what I would like to really know from you is what do you think is the most impressive proof just to you uh, that there really is life after death? Well, I think it all boils down to I, I, I assert the legal doctrine of raised judicata, as you know, means that it has been adjudicated. It hasn't decided to the whole, re, all the research that was done before 1930. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking for research today in near-death experiences and reincarnation studies in um, uh, deathbed visions and, and um, after-death communications of various kinds. But I think, you know, it was proved by 1930. Unfortunately, the, the world just didn't accept it. And, and that was most, before 1930, it was 95%... Um, uh, transmediumship and direct voice mediumships. Um, if I were to take any one of those, I would take the mediumship of Leonora Piper and maybe Gladys Osborne Leonard of England and say those two um, offered more than enough. We don't need any more. Uh, as far as a single case, I don't think any single case does it. I think it's as Sir Oliver Lodge, who you know did quite a bit of investigation. Uh, between 1890 and 1920, he said it's the cumulative evidence that did it for him. No, no single case did it, but uh, the Piper case was probably at the top of the top of the list. I I, I agree actually with everything you just said. Um, I would wouldn't even read um, mediumship uh, communications at all received after. Well, I I went a little bit later. Um, I said 1940, but the what what was produced before then was so extraordinary. Um, I was looking in um, uh, used bookstores uh, in the middle of the 20th century for books uh, on this topic. And you could find their books, the, the, the books that were written um, in, in uh, the early part of the 20th century. You could find a lot of them there in the used bookstores. And I bought three in, uh, that were about Gladys Osborne Leonard. And it was I read those three books in order, and it was an extraordinary experience because the, the, the people that aren't actually dead were trying to use her mediumship to prove 
their survival. They were they, this was this was a, a concerted effort on the part of people that are not in bodies. And they the book tests, remember those? I mean, there was a whole book of nothing but book tests. And I should, I guess, ex- briefly explain what it was. Um, they would uh, say through the medium, um, go to this address. This was all in London. Go to this address. Um, go to the top of the stairs. There's this door on the right. Go inside. On your left, there'll be a bookcase. Third shelf down, fourth book over. Open it. And on page 29, the top line will read this way. And so the, the researcher would, would mail that first to the, the uh, Society for Psychological Research. And then he would go and he would try to see whether that was true. If he could get in because it was a stranger's house, it was often true. And how could they read a dead, a, a closed book? How could dead people read a closed book? Nobody knows. Do you remember that book? It's the most amazing thing I have ever, ever read. Yeah, I I've written about the book, uh, the book test and the newspaper test, not not in my current book. I in in one or two of the prior books I've mentioned it, and I think it's definitely one of the most evidential, one of the top ten. Isn't it amazing? And nobody knows about it. They specifically, the people that are not in bodies, were specifically trying to prove their existence because the the, the scientists were so and still are so duplicitous. And for, for much of the second half of the 19th century, um, they were saying that there was no such thing as, as um, psychic ability. You can't read people's minds. It, it, they poo-pooed all the evidence for um, any kind of mental communication. So then these, this, this book is published, and, and I think there were others, too, full of book tests. And they immediately they didn't read the books. Instead, when people started talking about them, they immediately said, oh, it was uh, no, it wasn't it wasn't these. It was the earlier ones that were communications through mediums. Um, oh, they were reading the minds of the people in the room. So that wasn't mediumship. And so the book tests were specifically thought up by the dead to prove their existence, because there's no way they were reading anybody's minds. They were reading right. a closed book in a random room. Mm-hmm. And still they would not. They, the, the, the scientists, so-called scientists, would not even look at it. I think that's one of the greatest shames of human history. I mean, you can go back to William the Conqueror and before. One of the greatest shames that there ever was is the fact that science has so stonewalled the truth for so long and for no reason that I can understand. You know why they keep doing it when it's so pointless at this point? I, I think I know why, but... Uh... You know, the other thing is not only science, but religion. Um, yes. Uh, you'd think that religion would be open to it. Uh, here's proof of what you've been talking about and preaching yes. all these years. But uh, it didn't quite line up with what religion had taught. So they deemed that it was all, you know, demonic and didn't want nothing to do with it. So the uh, psychical researchers were sort of caught, caught between a rock and a hard place. They had science on one side and religion on the other, and, and uh, as a result, they they never got anywhere. And somewhere around 1930, I mean, I, you know, I put the, the put it at 1920, 1930, and even 1935, I think, it's, you know, when it really, psychical research really turned into parapsychology. Um, yes. Parapsychology wanted nothing to do with uh, the whole idea of life after death or of spirits. I mean, that's what got um psychical research in trouble in the first place talking about spirits and 
life after death. It just wasn't scientific. So parapsychology tried to stick with uh, telekinesis, uh, telekinesis or parakinesis and um, um, telepathy and so forth and just avoid the whole area of, of uh, life after death. And that's why we never heard about it. It was just sort of filed away in dust-covered cabinets. And, and um, one of the reasons I started writing about it is because I – I found it sometime, you know, around 1990, and started reading quite a few books by the pioneers, Sir Oliver Lodge and Sir William Barrett and and uh, James Hislop and a number of others. I just found them fascinating, but they were um, they were written academically. Uh, you know, one paragraph might take two pages. And as a having been trained as a journalist, I felt well, maybe I can take all this two pages and make it into ten paragraphs and make it understandable and that's sort of been my objective is to try and, you know, take all this academic stuff and, and um, turn it into something that, um, you know, the average person will read. That's why your books read um, so comfortably. Um, so, so much, as I say, they sort of read like candy. They're, they're uh, easy to read and easy to understand because you are a trained journalist. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. I um, started, uh, out, I wanted to be a, a turf reporter covering horse races. Uh, so Sa- San Jose State, uh, I, I'm from the Bay, from the uh, San Francisco area, and I went to San Jose State, which had the the best journalism school in you know, on the West Coast at the time. And but at that same time, I um, I um, saw newspapers closing right and left. San Francisco had four newspapers, and went down to two, and Oakland had two, and went down to one, San Jose had three, and all of a sudden had one. So I I concluded there was no future in journalism. And sort of, I, I ended up getting my degree in public relations, which was in the journalism department, but was more business-oriented. And, and um, so I, I spent 40 years in the insurance business as a claims manager and supervisor. Uh, but I worked part-time as a journalist, mostly sports uh, for the local paper so and since i retired 20 years ago i've been doing a lot of writing so i i think i've done enough to consider myself a a journalist now at this point for sure that's right one one of the things um that we've talked about the the mediums from the heyday of mediumship the the last couple decades of the 19th and the first three or four decades of the 20th century that they were really good the the physical mediums the the uh, deep trance mediums were really good and nowadays no one has the time or patience to develop those talents anymore it takes decades of a lot of work and so we have mental mediums and one of the things that that you've uh, written about and talked about is why it's so darn hard for the mental mediums to do well in reading in, in readings with dead people. Um, they, they can't get names, for example. Um, they can't get, uh, often they can't get details or they'll just misread the details. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think the first thing to, to look at is the fact that, you know, people look at mediums today, the clairvoyant type, the, what they see on television. I, I don't know who's on these days, but John... Um, John Edward, yeah, he was, yeah, 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 I can, yeah, and uh, Lisa Williams and um, mm-hmm. a few others. I I see them on now and then, uh, mostly old programs uh, that are being uh, resurrected. But uh, they're they're clairvoyants or clairaudient or whatever. They're not the same kind of medium that 
you know, I write about the trans mediums and the direct voice mediums. I mean, they, they get words, you know, they, they pick up uh, little clues here and there to identify the person, but they don't get complete sentences. And I think that's what's more, most attractive about the old mediumship is they would get, you know, there was yes. a dialogue going on and not just a word coming through to indicate that the person had recently gone to Atlanta, Georgia or something like that. Uh, um, but complete discussions, dialogues, and that that's what's what, what, what was different about it. Uh, and there's a difference between the direct voice and trans voice. Like Leonora Piper was a trans voice medium. At least she started out as a trans voice, and that meant, you know, the, the spirit would actually take possession of her body and speak through her mouth, whereas yes. a, a direct voice... Uh, Etta Wright, W-R-I-E-D-T, I think it was pronounced right rather than Reet, but I'm not sure. Anyway, she was a direct voice medium, and to me, probably the best on record. Um, she didn't, it didn't come through her body at all. It came through a, a megaphone that was floating around in the air, you know, yes. 10 feet above her head. Uh, yes. And uh, she'd be talking to somebody next to her at the same time two or three voices of the dead were coming through. So that, to me, and and... I don't, a number wow. of others. Sir Oliver Lodge said that the direct voice was 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 definitely the best and most evidential. Yeah, it it's um it is quite astonishing. Um, and there there were some um in the middle of the the twentieth century. Um, Leslie Flint was doing uh, that kind of mediumship, and the voices were even the same as the when the, the people were alive, which is quite extraordinary. They sounded like themselves, quite amazing. Right. But but it's just, uh, it, it, none of it happens now. And it, people, I think, you, you pointed this out once, people expect that whatever the standards are that we have here for communication, for example, we want to apply them with communication with the dead. And we can't do that. It's it's a whole different physics, a whole different everything. Talk about that. Talk about what, what I mean, think it's kind of amazing that we can communicate at all when you think about the obstacles involved. Right. And one of the things that uh, comes through is that the more advanced spirit spirits have a more difficult time communicating with us than the, the lower level spirits. It's, it's a matter of how close they are to the earth vibration. So the, the, and this is not, it's not to suggest that lower level spirits are necessarily evil spirits, just that they haven't advanced that far. Anyway, they're, they're closer to the earth yes. um, vibration than the more advanced spirits. So what happened, like in Leonora Piper, um, she, ha she had a spirit control. I mean, they say that the vast majority of the spirits on the other side can't, communicate directly with us but they yes. have their own mediums I guess, uh the one that i write about most and i i feel is the most evidential his name was george Pelou. um they called him george pelham to you know to, uh for privacy reasons in the book but uh, uh he took over from uh, another control call finney dr finney Yes. Uh, who started out as piper's uh, control and what they did they were mediums on the other side they were getting messages from spirits and interpreting them, passing them on through Leonora Piper, who was passing them on to the sitter. And there was a lot of distortion involved in that. I mean, to begin with, um, 
the control on the other side, Finney or Palou, whoever it happened to be, didn't always get it straight from the person. They were interpreting symbols and themselves, not just language. Yes. And uh, passing it on, that, you know, down through Piper, and you know, sometimes it came out different than what they intended. So it was, it was pretty complex. It is, and and uh, there's another factor too. I I was I don't know whether it was something you wrote or someone else else wrote was, but it was about um, Sir William Barrett who communicated to his wife, um, and I can't remember how the communication happened, but they had arranged a a word, a keyword, which he was going to give to her after his death. And when and then when he when he she was communicating with him through a medium, I believe it was, he said, you know, I remember the word. I just can't remember the word. And he said, I remembered the word. This to me was really an insight. I, I, I knew what the word was. But in order to get close enough to the earth plane, I had to go. I had to, redu- you know, give up a good part of my mind. You know, we, we, we rejoin our mind when our, the rest of our mind when we go back. There, he said, I had to t- I had to get rid of it again, and that's where the word was. And now I can't remember what it was because I'm back in the same mind I had when I was on Earth. And that was astonishing to me. I had never heard about that, but that makes a perfect sense that that would make it harder. Yeah, it was definitely Sir William Barrett, and and what uh, his he was communicating with um, his wife Florence Barrett, who happened right. to be a, a physician, gynecologist. Um, and he said that, you know, he, that once he went into the spirit world, his subconscious and his conscious united. But when he came back to communicate with her, they divided again. And, you know, oh. his memory was short. There are a lot of things he couldn't remember. But And um, he did point out a few things like, you know, she asked for some proof. Well, one of the things that confused her also was that Sir William Barrett referred to him. He gave his name as William. But when he... You know, when he was alive, he, she called him Will, and he referred to himself as Will. So she she was a little bit suspicious as to, yeah, you know, why why he gave. And he, also, he called her Florence when her name was actually Flo. So she she was very suspicious. But he pointed out to her that just you know, there's certain names you can get through, and the medium's mind, and he just couldn't get Will through. He got William through, um, and he got Florence through, but he he couldn't get Flo through. So. You know, it's just a matter of what what you can get through the medium's mind. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And and some mediums uh, have told me, uh, one, one in particular, these, these names are not all sort of common. Um, Oliver, Gerald, um, and um, there were two others now that also came through. But there were Dorothy. I mean, they were just not normal names. And they're, they're names of my relatives, close relatives, who have all gone ahead. And when I was testing mediums, I went to um, a medium of no fame and no particular, um, uh, so she's not noteworthy at all, but she got all the names and she knew who they were. And it was like amazing because nobody else had done that. And I said, how did you afterwards? I said, how did you ever get those names? And she said, well, uh, I know people who have those names. All I had, Mm -hmm. all that happens is that my guide shows me the face of the person I know and then a sign which shows how they're related to you. Well, I thought that was very sensible that they had that worked out. But what if he? What if she hadn't known anyone named Oliver? It would have been impossible. Right. And I remember John. Ed, yeah, John Edwards. The name I was trying to think of uh, on his TV program. He one time said that when he was getting the name George, a picture of Saint George 
was always shown to him. So that's how he knew it was George. Yeah. And he had various pictures and symbols of other common names that were shown to him to you know to get those names. But that what, that's one of the reasons that he couldn't get last names of people is because there weren't any symbols uh, in most cases available. Some people can get their first and last name, but as I pointed out to a number of people that, you know, mediums come in, in all ranges. I mean, just like athletes. I mean, you can get athletes who can hit 50 home runs a season and others can hit 10 home runs a season. They're, they're, they come in, you know, some people can run a mile under four minutes and others can't. I mean, they, they right. come in all degrees. That's right. But in, in addition, if they're not... If it's not a conversation that they're having, that, that the medium is having with our dead loved one, if it's really symbols that, that, that are, for example, John Edward has red roses, that always means love, that kind of thing. If they're, if they're used to communicating with symbols and John Edward's guide is basically talking to the dead person or, or the dead person's guide, I have no idea how much telephone they're really playing here, but, but if, if they're saying something complicated to John Edwards' guide, he doesn't. He can't pass it to John as words. He has to pass it as symbols. And so, mm. you know, maybe symbol for uncle and symbol for love and symbol for this and symbol for that. That seems to be what's going on. And if that's the case, no wonder it's not a long, you know, uh, detailed conversation they're able to have. That's why it was so wonderful. You're right. Back when when people were able to talk directly through a medium. Right. I, I think I told you the story in, in one of our previous interviews that uh, the first real evidential reading I had was in England at the um, society, um, or the spiritualism society there. And I, the medium gave me, she was a clairvoyant type. She said, somebody named George is here for you. And I... I knew two George. Two, I had two friends named George, but I was re- reasonably certain that um, um, both were still alive. Um, and I, I left there. She couldn't get any more. I, I, I tried to figure out who George was, and she sort of gave up on it. I went traveling around England uh, for two weeks. I came back to the same place, uh, different clairvoyant this time, but she got more information. She, she said. She said the same thing. George, George is here, and he's, he's got his hands on your shoulders, and he's telling me about the time that uh, at work when you uh, talked to him about the job, and and so she gave several other details, and it still didn't come to me because this was about twenty years when about twenty years before that that I knew George on another job, and it he she couldn't get a last name because the person had a. Uh, unusual name that you couldn't really put into a, a symbol or a, a pictograph. Um, but it all came to me after the session. I was on the um, train back to my hotel, and all of a sudden it, it kicked in, and everything made sense. Or six or seven points you said about George that 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 all made sense. I knew who it was, but it just didn't come come to me at that time. I, it it's, could be very frustrating, too, for, for mediums because they are trying to help us and they're trying to give us evidence that we solid um, and that we will absolutely believe. And often the kinds of evidence that are given that that work the best are really sort of trivial. Um, what, what, one of the best bits of, of evidentiary information I ever got was about eyebrows. 
um, the the medium said, um, you know, my mother was there. My mother was saying the standard mother things. And then um, the medium said, but why does she keep pointing to her eyebrow? And my mother had an embarrassing secret. Her embarrassing secret was she had no eyebrows. She had to paint them on each morning. And and I so I thought, oh, that must. And the medium said, as I was saying that or thinking that, oh, she's telling me she doesn't have to paint them on now. I mean, to me, there was no earthly way. And nobody outside the family knew that, never mind a medium many years later. So that kind of evidentiary information, when you when you get it and it really happens, you you uh, you know, it's very hard not to believe that that's real. Right, right. Whereas if anything that could be found by research, you know, oh, she says you went to this college, she says you did this or that. And it, and if you could find it by research, you know, so the medium did the research, but not that. So, um, I mean, it's hard. But think about it, Michael. These people are mind reading with dead people. It's very yeah. hard for me to believe in that. I mean, I believed in the in the earlier version of mediumship, but it's very hard for me to believe in that now. Yeah. What an embarrassing thing that is for me to say, but it's true. It just strikes me as too tenuous. Yeah, it does me too. Starting my my the introduction of my most current book, No One Really Dies, uh, saying that I'm a 98.8 percent believer. Oh, is that the percentage? And, I could and yeah, what well, you know, I I that I'm so I'm a 1.2 percent doubter, I, and I I think I'm modeling that after you know criminal law. I mean, beyond a reasonable doubt is not absolute certainty. I mean, there, there's still some unreasonable doubts there, and I think my 1.2 percent doubt are unreasonable doubts but there are things that have been that have been brought up uh, in the research like you know men like William James I mean, he he had a hard time believing in in um the spirit hypothesis he stuck to the um uh telepathy super telepathy and the the uh, cosmic called it the cosmic reservoir that somehow the medium was able to reach into some cosmic reservoir and come up with this information yeah. they just you know right. to, to say that he believed in spirits uh and life after death when that had all been impeached by science at the time was to you know attack his reputation so he had to be very cautious i think i think he believed a lot more than the written documents indicate uh, but he just uh, didn't want to put his neck on the line at the time i'm trying to think what it is that makes me certain i was certain after i had read um, I spent about two years reading everything I could find from before 1940. And at the end of that time, I, there was no way that that was not all real because it was two countries, Michael. It was southern England, eastern United States. And I, I never saw any copying. I mean, you'd think that some of the, that if, if, if it was not real, it just felt so real. I mean, it was so clearly the same place that these people went in the same details. I think there's a difference between believing and knowing and all all the people I know who who say they're at 100% have had some kind of experience a near death experience or whatever to to get them there. I I haven't had a near death experience. I oh, yeah. I'm just looking at the um the evidence and you know I I start out um you know maybe 50%. I grew up as a Catholic. I was 100% growing up as a Catholic. I mean no, I didn't know the right. alternative. Nobody told me anything. We didn't have TV then and we didn't really talk about it. And it wasn't until my sophomore year of high school that I, I had a biology teacher that uh, 
uh, the secret was that he taught evolution, and everybody, you know, was oh, he, ta- he teaches evolution. That's anti, <laughs> anti God, and you know, that's the first time I really thought about it. And so I, uh, I think I went down to then from you know, he seemed like a like a very knowledgeable guy and so forth. So I I became very confused, and I, so I may I maybe I went down to eighty percent at that time, but you know, I, and by the time I was um, I had left the Catholic Church when I was in my early thirties and I got a divorce and so forth. I, I guess I was 50-50 at that time. And and it wasn't until I turned 50 that I felt I, I've got to get, you know, got to get a better foundation or better belief system than I than I have. I'm getting old. So that's when I, start, I, I started reading. Edgar Casey was the first one I read. I read him and then I went from, from Casey to near-death experiences and then to uh, mediumship and so forth. I just found it all fascinating and every every case added up and the, you know leonora piper you know took me from yeah maybe i was at 60 percent at the time that took me up to about 75 percent and i you know read other cases like the paraffin hands case so that's that's high on my list one of the top three and that one involved um dr charles roche of uh, france and and dr gustav Gilly, uh, two very prominent french scientists they conducted a, uh, uh, an experiment in their laboratory behind locked doors. They had a medium there, um, and they took every possible control. They, they held his hands, one side on one side of him, the other side yes. on the other side of him. They made sure nobody else got in the room. They strip-searched him before he came into the room, or once he got in the room, to make sure he didn't bring anything with him. And the spirits came... Um, during the experiment, they had them dip their hands in paraffin bowls and make hand molds of their hands, and these hand molds are still available today. Yes. Um, and there's no other explanation for them. They they were holding the medium's hand. There was nobody else in the room at the time but those two okay. scientists. So how you debunk that, I mean, you, you could say, well, they're, they're lying, or they made it all up just to make a story or whatever, but you, you can come up with that kind of... Um, um uh, debunk um you know for for every story that the right. person is lying right i i think it's it's uh, the preponderance of the evidence that makes it so real for me but actually i've had two um experiences of light and there and i therefore i've in your in your mold of what makes you 100% certain is if you've had an extraordinary experience that's true when i first started doing this research I had in my mind those two experiences of light. So I already, I knew there was something behind the curtain. I was just trying to find out what it was. I think it's that first coming to understand that there is something going on and it, you, it's discoverable that that makes it so when the, as you find things, you realize you're assembling something you already knew. It, it doesn't it doesn't even seem strange after a while. It just feels you're putting together something that you knew a long time ago and you just forgot. Mm hmm. We're in the process of, of uh, beginning finally to do an online educational uh, program in this field. And um, it, I'm having so much fun with it because for the first time I'm putting together everything I know in this whole field and how it all works. And, and it's just it's a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. But but you start feeling, don't you, after a while that if you have this information, you don't have a right not to share it because there's so much suffering in the world which if everyone knew what you and I know, 
um, much of that suffering would go away. You start thinking on an eternal frame. You're no longer thinking in terms of, you know, this one life, life sucks, then you die. But it's a whole different way of looking at the world. And that's what we really are trying to teach with this program that we're starting to put together now. Um, Very important not to hold this information in when we have it, I think. I I agree. I mean, I I, um, think that's, the problem we have in the world today, so many people just don't believe or, that, you know, even those who are members of a, of a church, they don't really believe. They just, you know, oh. they've been told this stuff and, and, you know, they they haven't looked at the evidence and um, it just doesn't really do it for them. They're, you know, they're, they're Philistines, as Kierkegaard would have called them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and think about how strange and ironic this situation is. I mean, we have two sources of of information that everyone trusts. Nobody trusts the media, obviously. Nobody, you know, no who trusts politicians, but we trust science and we trust if we're religious, we trust Christianity. And both of them are flat lying to us. They had they are of no interest in even looking at what might be true. It's such mm-hmm. a strange position to be in. I mean, if they're lying to us, who can we trust? Well, yeah. we have to trust a, a retired journalist and a, you know, and a and a, a by day attorney, by night physicist. I mean, it's just very strange. Right. Strange to be alive. But don't don't you feel? And I think we talked about this before. My my position is that people think that you have to prove God before you can even get to the uh, consciousness surviving death issue, yes. life after death. Um, that's sort of a, a deductive approach that, you know, if there's no God, there's no life after death. My position has always been, look at the evidence for life after death, that's and then right. then figure out whether there's a God or not, whether, you know, and it doesn't make any difference as to what form you attach to that God. Uh, and I just see it on the on the, on the uh, internet all the time. I'm looking at these atheist websites, and they're all every one of them starts out w- with whether there's a god or not, and just dismiss life after death based upon the fact that they can't find evidence for God. That is absolutely profound and true. Yes, yes. In fact, um, I uh, having been a, a Christian scholar and um having done a lot of work in that field i can tell you with fair certainty that there that the the gods that the christians worship with all of the flaws that god has does not exist flat no i'm an atheist instead what exists is much more wonderful and that's what we're going to be talking about on this website that has nothing to do with what christians believe what christians believe is in a really kind of a spooky god would rather who, who wants to see his child being murdered and then he'll forgive us? Think about that. That's so insane. God is more is less forgiving than you and I are, uh, the Christian God. Anyway, don't get me started. I could talk about the yeah, Christian yeah. God for a long time. But but your point is very well taken. Your point is well taken. It, it, we are eternal by our very nature. There's there's nothing. There's no, there's there's no way to refute that, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not any particular God exists. You're right. Right, and you know the other thing is that you know they look at the um, all the tragedy that's taking place, and they say, you know, if there's a God, you know, why doesn't quote he, you know, 
take care of this? Why is he allowing it? Um, they take the free will aspect out of it and just blame it all on God and say that, you know, this wouldn't happen if, if God really cared about us. Yeah, absolutely right. I think, though, that they, the things are changing um, to, to not, not so much with science. People still want to believe science, which is so amazing when actually they've been totally bankrupt for a century. But um, but but I think people are coming to understand that Christianity doesn't make any sense. But they're trying to keep keep Jesus. But while we lose the religion and in fact, that's the correct approach, because Jesus, everything I can find uh, and everything I have learned tells me Jesus is real. But the religion got it all wrong. And so that strikes me as kind of hopeful. People are becoming open minded to that extent. But it's still. How do you what do you think it's going to take for the culture as a whole to finally get a clue? Will there be a breakthrough moment or is this going to be a, just a very gradual process? I think it's going to be very gradual and not, not fast enough. I just don't see any big breakthrough taking place. I, the media is against it. The media is not helping there. You know, they, they feel they have to be on the side of science and right. just beyond science. So um, I, I'm not hopeful in that regard. There's going to be a, you know, a sudden awakening along the line here. Yeah, well, I, I, I used to think that it was going to happen. Um, there would be, it would be, there would, there would be some kind of a development in electronic communication, and suddenly everybody would be able to talk to Dead Eyed Mildred, get her recipe. Um, it would be, everybody would be doing it, and so we would just leave science behind. Then they would be, have to humbly, you know, realize they don't know what they're doing, and then they would be a great help in helping us figure all this out. But I don't think anymore that that's going to happen. Those who have been trying to develop the soul phone and so on have hit barriers, which I think may be um, insurmountable, at least in the short term, that they have nothing to do. They basically have to do with the difficulty of trying to talk across dimensions electronically. That's that's kind of a dubious thing, too, when you think about it. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's going to it's going to be a while, but eventually we know the truth will win. But will it ever be at 100 percent? I mean, I, I think we've talked about it before when when uh, Victor Hugo was supposedly communicating with Martin Luther. And he said, why? Why doesn't God better reveal himself? I don't recall the, the, the complete answer. But in effect, Martin Luther said that that doubt is necessary, that, you know, if, if everybody knew for sure, it would yes. handicap their free will decisions and and. Uh, you know, I guess there'd be many people committing suicide. You know, what's the point of say they're have, undergoing hardships? Why, you know, as long as they're absolutely certain that that things are going to be better on the other side, they're going to um, take the easy way out. Um, I don't know to what extent that would happen, but that's what what Martin Luther seemed to. Um, I, I I understand. Yes. I understand that that impulse, um, that feeling, but I think it wouldn't happen. I think we would consider life to be more sacred. Knowing why we come, which we don't know, um, we come to learn and grow spiritually. Uh, people would then say, "All right, well, I'm here. I may as well do that. Work on doing that, and uh, I better not rob any more banks. <laughs> I better not kill any more people because that's going to be a negative longer term." I think it would. We would. We would start living in a on, a on an eternal frame, which I think would make things a lot better. But you're right. Who knows? All I know is, I've got to tell you, I, you have written a wonderful body of work. 
Um, I, I recommend it frequently. I think, I think that what you've done is to take some things which are inherently interesting and to make them at the same time also easily understood and easily digestible by people who don't have much knowledge in this field. So it, it's, it's wonderful. It's one of the, one of the groups of books that um, I think are most, uh, I, I most recommend to people who don't have much knowledge. You know, this is a good way to get started and get your feet wet in it. Um, wonderful job. Very well done. Well, thank you. Can I can I just mention that you know if, if anybody is looking for one of my books, you don't look under Tim T I M. My last name is T Y M N. Uh, I think I, I told that story before. My grandfather came over from Ukraine in 1905. His la- last name was spelled T Y M C Z Y S E Y N. Nobody could uh, nobody could pronounce it, or they they misspelled it. Uh, so he shortened it. Uh, I was sitting in church one day, and he saw the word "him," H-Y-M-N, oh. uh, up on on the um, in in front, and then he he pieced it all together. He said, "Well, I'll just change it to Tim, and it, it'll be simple for everybody." But now people still call it Timon, Time, and so forth. Oh, but uh, yeah. you know, they still don't get it straight. But anyways, T-Y-M-N. T-Y-M-N, and of course, that we'll put all of that in the materials, including the the titles of the books. So if you're listening um, and you'd like to to read some of uh, Michael's books. I think you'll really enjoy them. I think you'll be very happy you did. And what do you hope people will take away from our conversation today? Well, I think the main thing is that that there is a <laughs> a life beyond this one, and there's strong evidence for it. And, and um, it's not necessarily the humdrum heaven and horrific hell that religion's <laughs> been teaching, but... Right. It's, it's a much more uh, dynamic uh, afterlife. Beautifully said. This is this is this is the bad part. When, when you, after you die, it comes the really good part. Uh, as long as what, of course, as long as it was the death that you planned. These plans are these de- deaths are always planned beforehand. So you can't cheat and get in, leave early and think you get out of it. But if you if you live a good life and you're transitioning, uh, the, the wonders you cannot even imagine the wonders. Thank you so much, Michael. What a wonderful time to have talking to you. Well, thank, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll do this again. Everyone, once again, we've come to the end of our time. This has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, and I'm very glad you could be with us today. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began, you never will end. When you get what that means, it changes everything in your life for the better. Next week, we'll be talking with David Howard, who has written an important book with which I think many Seek Reality listeners are going to identify. It's called Prisons with Stained Glass Windows, Untying the Bonds of Dogma, Embarking on the Path of Spirit. I think that sums up where a lot of us feel we are right now. David Howard was reared in a conservative evangelical and fundamentalist home. He then became a postulate for the Episcopalian priesthood, but he had a change of heart. He withdrew from the seminary and he became a teacher. He did was a social worker. He was a journalist for much of his career, including TV journalism. But he continued throughout his life to study religion, to study theology, religious history, and research focused on human consciousness and post-death survival. 
He's the founder and president of the Universal the Universal Message. It's it's a nonprofit organization that's been a member organization of the International New Thought Alliance for many years, and now he has produced for us what is an extraordinary work of scholarship. It's a thick book. We usually do thin books because I don't have much time to read them, but this one I thought was important enough that I will read it, and it's pretty thick. If you, like him and like me and like so many other people I hear from them every day, have come to think of churches as something like spiritual prisons with stained glass windows, please be sure to join us next week and be prepared to begin to be liberated. This week, our guest has been the illustrious Michael Tim, who has been with us for the sixth time. Mike has done such extraordinary work in the field of afterlife research and documentation that he holds a special place, I think, in the hearts of all his fellow afterlife researchers. He's the author of seven books about the afterlife, and we'll put all the titles in the materials. And he wrote also about the pioneers of the afterlife. There, there have been wonderful periods when this was much better information, much better known than it is now. And those times, I think, are about to come again, thanks to the Internet, which is a very positive note. Mike still has that little tiny speck of 2% of uncertainty, but in fact, he knows all this work that he has done was all solid evidence for something which, in fact, is true, and you can take it to the bank. Your life is eternal. You never began. You never will end. You never are going to die. And the better you handle your life now, the happier you're going to be about it when you go home. Because the afterlife is nothing like, if you're religious, nothing like you're told you're going to have to sit forever and strum a harp and sing hymns. Uh-uh. They don't even sing hymns in the afterlife, except sometimes for nostalgia's sake. No, that's where they really have fun. And I think, frankly, many people who read Mike's, Michael's books are going to be really enlightened and really a lot more able to understand the glorious truth of what, where we're going. So I urge you to read them. And as you know, I have nonfiction books as well. I'm, I won't say the titles again because I always say them, but you can find them in um, at, on Amazon or you can find them in bookstores. And the adult books are all available, of course, also as audiobooks. If you want to talk about any of my books or anything at all, don't hesitate to try reach out to me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. I answer every email. And meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, always knowing, never forgetting that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you in particular are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.